Welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I will be your host on our journey through the movies out there that maybe just need a little more attention, a little more love in the world. My movie today is a personal favorite. Uh, This is the 1985 comedy Lost in America starring Albert Brooks. I am a huge Albert Brooks fan. He's kind of one of these niche guys that not everyone seems to know, but people who do know him love him. He's like one of these guys just has a huge following out there, but just it's one of those things that not everybody is aware of him because he only puts out a movie like every five years or so. So he's not really a big mainstream comic guy. And uh, let's see, my guest today is going to be kind of interesting because this is one of the first shows I've done where I'm talking to someone I have never met before. Uh, Our guest today, his name is Sean McCumber, and he's, let's see, a freelance pop culture writer. He contributes to the websites Decibel and Rue Morgue. He's, uh, let's see, he hosts his own radio show, just all sorts of stuff, a big background in movies. And we just met on Twitter a couple weeks ago over this movie. So this is the first time I'm ever talking to him. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you for having me. I'm a fan, and I appreciate the invite. <laughs> yeah, for people who don't know, um, for the when I pick hosts for these movies that we do on the show, usually I'll find somebody I know, I have a background with, uh, someone I've talked about a specific movie before. This one, Lost in America, I was having a hard time finding a co-host because it's not one that a lot of people tend to know. So I just kind of as like a... a, a, a what's it called, a Hail Mary pass. I just kind of threw a thing out on Twitter, said, anybody want to do a podcast on Lost in America? And I happened to find Sean, who had literally just posted that he loved this movie like two days before that. And this is how two ships have passed in the night. And here we are to talk about Albert Brooks. Well, you know, it, it, it's fitting, actually, I think, with the uh, with the film itself, which is sort of about random encounters, right? Uh, why don't you uh, give people a little back history on who you are, how we got here today, what your history with this movie is. Why are we here talking about a 1985 comedy today? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually a huge fan of uh, Albert Brooks as well. So um, I, you know, I'm 42 years old. So I've been a freelance writer for about 15 years. And, um, you know, 1985, it's an interesting, yeah, I, I feel very lucky uh, to have had my parents uh, get divorced in 1984 because, you know, my, my, my father would pick us up every weekend and literally the only thing you can think of to do with, like, your three kids when you're going through a divorce is take them to the movies. 1984 and 1985 are two of the best movie years in history. I mean, there's so many great things that came out then. Um, so this era particularly is uh, one of my favorites. Um and uh, as far as, you know, I, I didn't see the movie during that run. Obviously, I was 10 years old. But um, there, there, so there's something about the fact that the sort of um, ambiance of the movie that connects me to that era, which I think was such an interesting time for movies. And then as far as Albert Brooks goes, you know, I've my sort of one of my major areas of writing about movies is in the horror uh, genre and the subgenres, and yeah, you know, I used to be the senior East Coast correspondent for Fangoria magazine back before the collapse, and um, and now you know it's being resurrected now, and uh, I'll be contributing to it somehow. But um, 
and you know, Rue Morgue is sort of a big international horror magazine. But you know, my personal love of, of that subgenre comes from the same reason that I love like children's movies, which is no rules, sort of surrealism and sort of uh, you know, anything can happen and magical realism and all this sort of thing. So um, you know, that all connects to this just because my, my entree to the world of Albert Brooks was through uh, Defending Your Life, which I know you just spoke about. Um, you had a conversation about on the Oh God podcast uh, a couple episodes ago. Oh, yeah. And I just love that movie so much. It, it, it's sort of like the the lighter version of the Exorcist 3 vision <laughs> of the afterlife with the George C. Scott and the train station and all these things. So um this to me is an interesting book into that because it's, you know, it's such a beautiful movie in the way it envisions the afterlife. Um, and so that sort of made me a fan. And then, uh, you know, that was in high school. And then through the years, I've gone back to these uh, Albert Brooks movies. And obviously what you get out of Albert Brooks uh, when you're younger is sort of one liners and, you know, funny barbs and these sorts of things. And then especially with Lost in America, when you come back to it, you know, as you get older, as you have kids, get jobs and middle age and these things, then it really speaks to different parts of you. And um, so I, I guess since high school years, I've been a fan of Albert Brooks, but his work has come to mean a lot more to me, um, just in sort of like a, a great novel where you can get something out of it, different out of it, every era of your life you visited it, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it's funny that you said you you came up or you were introduced to him through defending your life because that's my history as well. Again, I'm almost the exact same age as you are. I'm 44. So, Albert Brooks was making movies in the 80s and they didn't really resonate with me because they weren't really marketed to the, to a kid. Yeah. And it wasn't until defending your life. What year was that? Was that like 1990, 89? I believe it was 91. Okay. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe yeah, for people who don't know, Defending Your Life is basically a guy dies and you go to heaven afterwards and there's a big trial where your whole life is on trial where you have to defend it, defend the choices you made and basically if you're going to go to heaven or hell. And again, we'll save that for a different podcast, but it was a really big comedy at the time. And I saw that. That was the first Albert Brooks movie I ever saw. And again, I thought it was cute. It was kind of clever. It wasn't really like when you're 15, that's not really, you don't have a lot of resonance with that story. But it wasn't until about... Uh, seven years later when the movie Mother came out. You know Mother, I would assume. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so Mother came out, and Mother was just hyped up all over the place by, like, Roger Ebert and all the critics as, as being one of the top comedies of the year. So I saw Mother, and I just fell in love with that movie. Just, it's so well-written and well-acted, and just, there's a sense of little cynicism in it, and I just loved Albert Brooks, and so I started going back from there, and I started rediscovering all his old stuff. And this one we're talking about today from 1985, Lost in America, really stood out to me to the point that, you know, I, I do comedy writing. That's what I do. I'm a comedy writer. I'm pretty well known on the Internet for uh, doing satire and parody and stuff. And Albert Brooks is one of those guys. I just watch him and I think I can't do that. That's he's so much better than this at most than most comedy writers that it's just I mean, awe. I just watch this guy and the way he creates dialogue and characters and movies. And it's just his stuff. I, I tend to think is almost like on a different level than most other comedy writers. Would you kind of agree with that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I saw, I, I know, I, I'm, I'm not sure if it's in um, the liner notes uh, of the, the Scott Tobias essay that comes with the Criterion edition of this, but somebody, somewhere in there they say, you know, he's had to settle with just being every comedian's favorite comedian rather than America's favorite comedian, you know, and I, I think there's some truth to that in that 
if you look at his early work, if you look at like these short movies he did with SNL, or you look at um, the the first film he did, which was a, a a parody of that PBS series, An American uh, Family. Mm-hmm. I, it's escaped. The name of the movie is escaping me right now, but um, which was sort of like uh, almost a, a meta movie before you know, one of these uh, mockumentaries before, well before they you know sort of got their own subgenre. You know, I, I, so I think he's. Uh, if you look at that stuff, I, I think you can see what a profound influence he's had on um, on comedy on especially comedy and film, on uh, sort of the, the, the smarter end, the sort of smarter background that can, you know, flow under. And you said before, you know, the, the, the sort of satire that, you know, through the character is sort of biting, but underneath is not really so biting. I think all of that stuff connects so strongly to his work. And uh, and I, I think when you, when you watch something, um, when you watch an Albert Brooks movie, you can sort of see the seed being planted for all these other movies that maybe, you know, don't have the same idiosyncrasies, but are at the same time um, so clearly connected to it, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And although, you know, like you said, uh, the that he's the comedian's comedian, that's an excellent way to describe him because, yeah, he just has never really been a mainstream, like, comedian. Like he's ne- He doesn't make the biggest movies. He doesn't win a lot of... Uh, awards are, are you familiar this is something that i've read that a lot of people don't actually know over the years about how he was originally pitched to be the fir- the permanent host for saturday night live are you aware of that no i'm not aware of that actually i know he was sort of an early adopter over there doing like their short movies uh but i, I did not know that yeah, at the time, okay, this is a good history lesson for anybody who likes SNL or the history of comedy in America, that when Lorne Michaels pitched the show in 1975, this variety comedy show, Saturday Night Live, it was not intended to have a new host every week. That was not really the plan. The plan was they wanted one permanent host that would be like the lead into everything. And the one they wanted, and I've read this, is that there was no doubt who it was going to be, Albert Brooks. He was involved in the show. He was the funniest guy. He was the best writer. We'll just make him like the permanent host, and it will all kind of revolve around him. And then through a variety of uh, uh, unfortunate events, it ended up not happening because Brooks proved to be kind of difficult to work with. He got in fights with Lauren over like his films, what they would be. And then I think Albert Brooks, I don't know if he can take this as gospel, but he has gone on record in interviews saying he was the one that suggested why not do a different guest host every week why not do that instead and so that's how saturday night live became what it became but that is this is the level of uh awe that people have for albert brooks as a comedy writer that it was there was no doubt in anyone's mind that he was going to be the permanent host of snl at that time and he still has that stature among comedians that again he is the best of the best and maybe he's kind of a pill to work with we may get into that in the podcast but like is again if anybody who likes my comedy writing if you want to see who inspires me watch albert brooks that is the guy you can learn a lot from yeah that, that that's an that's a sort of an amazing anecdote when you think about the the cast of the uh, early years of saturday night live but at the same time now that you say it it makes sense in that the things he does are things that make sense make complete sense afterwards you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh if you look at the if you if you read just the the blurbs on those early Saturday Night Live movies he made, um, you know, the shorts, you will say, oh, yeah, that makes sense once somebody says it. But it, it's it's hard to envision. You, you can imagine why some of these ideas um, would come across as maybe 
uh, far-fetched or hard to execute mm-hmm. until you have someone of his ability doing it. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a lag, I think, that has, uh, has hurt his career in, in some respects. I mean, obviously he's had a career that people would envy, but at the same time, there's a little bit of a lag as far as, uh, you know, being the innovator and having to convince people of things. Uh, but before they become commonplace. Yeah, and one would say he doesn't really do ha-ha funny. He does kind of conceptual funny, and it's you'd see this later in stuff like The Office. Very yeah. awkward, confrontational, just hard-to-watch kind of cringy humor, and he just he likes to ramp up and ramp it up and make it more and more awkward and cringy. And, and again, Lost in America is a perfect example of that. I can think of a couple scenes in this that are among the funniest scenes I have ever seen in a comedy movie, but you can't really appreciate them until you see them. It's all just in the execution. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, um, what you're, another thing you're getting at here maybe is, you know, the, the amount of time he's willing to put into these scenes because lost in America easily, I'm sure we'll get into this when we get into the actual synopsis, but lost in America could easily be a dozen more set piece scenes, you know, mm-hmm. but he, he takes each one and he gives it its due. Like he, each sort of, uh, you know, moment in the film, um, where people would maybe want to get to the joke faster, especially uh, these days, I think he really lets lets everything breathe, lets it take its time, lets the uh, you know, l- l- like you said, not not snappy, funny, fun, haha kind of thing, but give it its due, let the atmosphere build until the point where um, you know, there's the, there's you're you're laughing at the at the tension breaking really by the end of it and. And so, uh, you know, that's why there's there's four or five big set pieces in Lost in America. In lesser hands, uh, I, I think they would have, you know, done a jokier version where it was, you know, 25 set pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and I've read reviews of this movie that say, yeah, it's great. And then it just doesn't have an ending. And that's that's a valid criticism because Albert Brooks. Again, I've never really been sure if movies are the right medium for him because he doesn't wrap it up in a snappy package. He just develops characters and scenes and ideas, and then maybe you kind of run out of time and it just has to end, and that's really kind of what Lost in America is. It's funny because uh, the the first couple times I watched this years apart, both times I was shocked that the movie was ending. I was, (laughs) and to me it felt like I'd been watching it for half an hour. I I hadn't realized it'd been an hour and a half, you know, and I, I think that's actually the second time. That was actually something beautiful to me about the movie, about how weirdly they just get to that point. And I actually think it fits with the thematics of uh, of this movie, but we can get into that later. Okay, before we dive into the movie, there's one thing I want to bring up. And there's a, there's a uh, particular description that has always been attached to Albert Brooks through the years. And I'm curious what your thoughts on this are. For many years, I have heard this, that he is the West Coast Woody Allen. Yeah, I mean... I guess I guess I can see why people would say it just uh, they're both dealing with sort of uh, you know anxiety and neurosis and yeah. and that sort of thing. But I, I think um, I think where they take those things are, are fairly different places. It one, my, well, my wife always points out when we watch it, she's like, it must be exasperating living with Albert Brooks. I bet he's just a mess to live with. He's just exhausting and talking and neurotic and just kind of complainy. And she's like, you know what I love about him, though? That he writes that into his characters. Like, every Albert Brooks movie is directed by Albert Brooks. It's written by Albert Brooks. It stars Albert Brooks. And I think that's where the Woody Allen stuff comes in, because it's always about him. But, like, Albert Brooks is just so aggressively 
irritating to people. And my wife's like, I love that he makes himself unlikable in a movie because he's probably like that in real life and he knows that it's irritating and he knows that it's funny and he just goes with it. So she's like, I love that about him that he just steers right into that curve. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, I would say that's uh, another difference with Woody Allen really is, um, you know, the Woody Allen characters are sort of endearing in their, you know, sort of in the, in the anxieties and narcissism. You know, there's like a, an endearing quality to he sort of imbues his own his own appearances with that I, I don't think Brooks does. Yeah, they're, they're entirely different movies. I can see why people would say they are kind of West and East Coast versions of themselves. But yeah, that's again, personally, I've never really liked many Woody Allen movies. I have yet to see an Albert Brooks movie that I don't like. And it, even one like The Scout, there's one called The Scout that people hate. It just got reamed at the box office or at the, in the, with the critics. Even when I watch that, I'm like, for an hour, this is really funny. And then it kind of falls off at the end. But it's like even the stuff that wasn't like one of his better movies is really funny. Yeah, well, one I think, you know, again, to sort of mind the differences there, I, I think Woody Allen could probably take something from Albert Brooks if they are, you know, if, if this theory were correct. And that's just that, you know, you don't have to make a movie every year. I actually like a lot of Woody Allen movies, but um, but I do feel like this this the work ethic that everybody talks about, every feature of, uh, about Woody Allen is, you know, he writes the script and he makes a movie once a year, does it once a year, once a year. Sometimes it feels like some of these could have used two years, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and Albert Brooks, obviously his, the movies he's directed, there's chunks of time between them. And, um, and I think that's to his benefit. You know, I think, uh, I think his, the movies that were, he's, he's written and directed or co-written and directed, I think um, you can tell there's a substantial amount of thought. You know, even if the, even if the execution and sort of that the idea that actually carries those uh, thoughts forward is maybe um, maybe done on a faster scale, I think the underlying uh, philosophy mm-hmm. seems like it's it's um, solid and well thought out. Yeah, and you can just tell that Albert Brooks is a perfectionist. He's not going to release something until it is good and ready by his standards. And again, that's why Lorne Michaels always butted heads with him because Brooks does not really work on a weekly schedule. But yeah, that's and I think that you like that's a good point what you brought up that Brooks will put stuff out on his pace when he's good and ready, and that's why they hold up so well because he spent the time on them. Yeah, you would almost hope. Uh, you know, I, I think. I can't remember looking up. I think he's 70 now. Um, you know, you almost wish that, that the Finding Dory, Finding Nemo thing had uh, come through a little earlier because you know, get that money and um, sort of that uh, the cachet that goes along with being in these these giant movies. And uh, you would you would hope he'd be able to, you know, um, channel that into several new Albert Brooks movies. You know, you sort of use the use the blockbuster to get the indie stuff done. That's true, yeah, and that's for people, again, a lot of my audience might not know Albert Brooks or who he is. You may recognize him, that would be the most mainstream thing he's done, that he was the voice of, what, Marlin, the dad of uh, Nemo? Yep. Okay, yeah, so that's where you know him, he's the voice of that, but again, it's not his movie, they just used his voice, but that is where you would know him from, and 
Okay, so let's let's get into the movie here. We've buried the lead far too long, I think, although this is really interesting. This is one of those guys that I, I could just talk about for hours because he's so interesting. And we haven't even mentioned the fact that what his real name is, not just, I'm sure you know this, but for people who don't know, Albert Brooks's real name is Albert Einstein. Yeah. So if your name is Albert Einstein, you have a lot to live up to. He changed his name, yet he is still the smartest comedy writer in Hollywood. So somehow he still lived up to his name. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's, it's sort of an amazing... That's sort of an amazing thing. And that that and and who his brother is, right? Yeah, Super Dave Osborne, his brother. Right. That's 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 just two really crazy things to have in your biography, I think, personally. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I mean, I myself am named after the most famous tenor singer of the 1950s, so I always had you know that the famous legacy of a name hanging over my head. But that's nothing compared to naming your killed Albert Einstein. So way to go, mom and dad. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, that's the kind of thing that's probably not a lot of fun in junior high. <laughs> no. Yeah. Can you imagine if Albert Brooks like missed a question in math class? Like, way to go, Einstein. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's dive into the movie here. Uh, Lost in America, 1985, one of these vanity Albert Brooks product projects, which sounds like an insult, but it's not. It's just a perfect representation of him on a screen. And this is a movie where he plays an advertising executive named David Howard. So basically the story is he is a former hippie. And he and his wife are these former hippies. They all they all grew up in the 60s with all this idealism. And you get to the 80s, and now they're all yuppies, and all their values have changed. And he's they're caught in caught in this world of uh, of money and wealth and you know and job titles. And they're both just yuppies. Again, if you, if you anybody who grew up in the 80s knows what we're talking about here, the children of the 60s whose lives have turned around into a uh, different type of uh, mindset. And so basically it's all about he's going to get a promotion at work. He's a, he's going to get become the senior vice president at his firm. His wife like works in what is she like a personnel director and his wife is played by Julie Haggerty, one of my favorite actresses who sadly did not appear in very many movies. But uh yeah, so what what am I am I forgetting anything here that these two yuppies they're about to get this big promotion at work. They're going to move to a big house. They're going to get all this money. He's spending all this time shopping for a Mercedes and then uh it's all going to crash down around him. Yeah, I mean that's that's the setup. It it, uh, it I mean right. I, I guess the only other thing would be just from the very first moments in the movie, um, it's established that he's indecisive and second guesses everything he's doing, and uh, you know to the point where you know he says, "Should we be doing this?" So the, the first lines of dialogue in the movie talks about, you know, should we be doing this? Should we have picked a different house? And his wife just replies. Oh God! You know, and it just—it just tells you everything you need to know about, like you said before, what it's like living with this man. He's just, uh, you know, neurotic about everything, clearly, and uh, and she's obviously been living with it for a long time. And so they're sort of—you can also tell from, um, you know, the opening of the movie also shows you the rut they're in, uh, even as they, you know, even before he learns that he's not climbing the ladder in the way he thought he was, the ladder is not all that appealing to either of them. You know, they can't can't get out of their way and just be happy, it seems. Yeah. 
And that was something you would hear a lot about in the 80s. These people were had made all this money and got houses and big cars, but they were dissatisfied with their lives. And that's kind of where the Howards are here, that they just, they're kind of in a rut. They're just uh, like a middle-aged crisis. And there's, although there's a fantastic scene right at the start of the movie. And again, there's like four, again, of the funniest scenes I can think of in any movie from that era. And there's a scene where it's just five minutes of David with a Mercedes dealer trying to buy a new car. Right, right. <laughs> That's, and there's a big debate. Like he's, he's, this is his life. He's debating like if, if all the extras are included in the $44,000 price. And there's like an argument over leather versus Mercedes leather. And it's just, he's just such a little nitpicker and, and he's so perfectionist. And then again, I just keep writing this in my notes as my wife is watching this with me the other day. She's like exhausting. That's all I can think of. He would be exhausting to live with. Yeah. 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 And not letting anything go. Sort of. Yes, nothing, nothing escapes his attention. He must be on top of everything at all times. And this is where he goes into his boss's office at the start of the movie, thinking he's going to get this big promotion. And the, the his boss is like, well, no, we're just going to shift you. We're not going to make you senior vice president. We're going to shift you across the country. And you're going to get this big new account with Ford. And it's going to be this huge, prestigious thing. And it's funny because it's really an honor what he's been asked to do. But because he's David Howard, he just basically has a temper tantrum which is one of the big set pieces in this movie. Ten minutes of him ranting that he must, I must be allowed to get what I deserve. I've been working for this. You must give me what I need. And it's just, it's one of those you kind of have to see to believe. But this Albert Brooks temper tantrum is just majestic over the fact that he's not getting the big promotion. He's only getting a lesser promotion. Yeah, I think uh, I have two things to say about that. The first would be, it's so wonderful that there's that third man in the room he doesn't know. He's just... (laughs) you know, hurling insults at, and, uh, and they're, they're all such beautiful insults, you know, um, and, uh, the second thing I would say is just, you know, from sort of a storyline narrative perspective, it's, it's interesting that it foreshadows so much because, you know, like you said, this, this could be, this could be a great honor if he accepted it how it was, but he's not able to accept it how it is. This, this thing has, entered his mind of how this whole thing's going to go. He talks to his secretary, you know, this is going to be amazing. He's like, Oh, it's not working. Even in the scene, he says something about, you know, um, I, I called my friends and they all, they all agreed. I was the best person for this, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and so there's been so much buildup that he's holding on to this idea, you know, and, you know, he can't swing from that bar to the next bar and say, Oh, I'm gonna get to work with, you know, I'm gonna get to write jingles for Ford, and I'm an ad guy, and this is like, this is a amazing pinnacle, amazing challenge. No, it's like he's gonna hold on to this other side, and you know, some of the stuff that his boss is even telling him, like, oh, you know, you don't want to be an executive. That's not a creative thing. You know, these things that, um, although the boss is set up as kind of a, a, you know, unpleasant foil, the fact is, like, a lot of what the boss says makes sense. Maybe it would be more fun to run, you know, to uh, be the guy who writes the jingles and has fun with the copy than to be the guy who has the title, you know, but none of that can none of that can really break through. Although, do you know about the the New York, New York inside joke here? There's a great little setup for later in the movie here with the song. Right, right. What is it? 
uh, the the advertising guy says, you know, we won Ford as a client and we got the rights to New York, New York. They're like the Sinatra estate has never allowed New York, New York in a movie, which is true. They had never had. This was the first movie in American history, I think, that had been given the rights to use that song in a movie. And they use it later in the movie. It's at the very end, the very last shot. They actually play it. And it's hysterical that they, they set it up here. And it's funny because I don't know how he does this, the kind of connections that Albert Brooks has, how he got New York, New York to be in a movie when no one had ever been allowed to do that before. But then he does it again later in uh, in uh, Mother with Mrs. Robinson, where not only does he get uh, uh, permission from the Paul Simon estate to use Mrs. Robinson, he actually gets Paul Simon to record a new version just for the movie. Like, what kind of connections does this Albert Brooks guy have? Yeah, now that you're saying it, I do remember uh, they talked to him about it in the in the uh, supplemental interview in the Criterion edition. Um, and I think, I think it was one of those things where just fortune favors the bold kind of thing, you know, just made the calls and then, uh, and then somebody called him and said, Frank said you can do it. Something like that. I can't remember the story exactly, but it was definitely just, um, you know, being, being bold enough to write a letter and ask. Yeah. I guess sometimes it just works when you do that. Okay, so Albert has, or, uh, David Howard has been turned down for his dream promotion, and then he doubles down and starts insulting his boss, and now he gets fired. So not only does he not get the promotion, now he's told the boss to F off. He's called the little bald guy in the room a little bald-headed fart. Yeah, yeah. And he basically, has, his career is basically ended because he's fired. And now David, in a, in a wonderful temper tantrum of extremes, is going to not only lose his job here, he's going to decide, well... I guess the working world isn't for us. Let's drop out of society. So he's going to run home, and he should be devastated that he's lost his job, but he's going to look at it as a glass is half full type of thing. He goes to his, his wife and says, screw it all. Let's sell the house. Let's liquidate everything. Let's go Let's go drop out like an easy rider back in the 60s, and we'll be hippies again, and we'll drop out of this yuppie world. So Touch Indians. Yes, we're gonna we're gonna touch Indians. We're gonna we're gonna see the mountains, and the, he has all these great dreams of what they're gonna do. We're gonna go back to our '60s mindset, and they're gonna drop out. And his wife, of course, uh, Julie Haggard, is like, "Are you sure we should do that?" And he's like, "Yes, Linda. Yes, we must do this." And he, of course, he's David Howard. He's Albert Brooks, so he's very persuasive. And this is really what the the crux of this movie is, that he will talk her into selling their house, liquidating everything they have, and they're going to buy a motorhome, and they're just going to go live out in the land like Easy Rider, like motorcyclists. Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, the, the sort of the honesty of uh, this portrayal, as, as far as, you know, the emotions we feel that we don't admit to other people sort of channel out of him in this role, and... Uh, so I would just add, there's this this beautiful moment where he's first describing what happened to his wife, and um, he says, you know, I hope Phil, who is the guy who got the promotion instead of him, I, I you know, I hope he gets the boat that I wanted. I hope he crashes and he's uh, eaten by seals in Catalonia. And his wife says, but honey, you you like Phil? And he's like, yeah, I know. So maybe I hope maybe I don't hope he dies. You know, this sort of thing, but yeah, it's just this beautiful thing about the, you know, the places that, um, that this kind of event can take you to, you know, where you're just lashing out and, uh, and this whole thing is just one giant lashing out, you know, it goes way beyond Phil. He's going to lash out in his whole history, his whole life. You know, he feels like, um, he spent all this time, put in all this time and, uh, and he was betrayed, you know, 
not not just by Phil who would take this job, but by his boss and by all these people who he'd uh, he'd put the stock in, you know. And uh, I, the other thing I think is interesting is before they talk about buying a, you know, a, an RV, uh, they're looking at ads for like little ranch houses, and it's kind of funny because in the the opening scenes of the movie they're talking about, you know, he's saying maybe we should have got a house with a tennis court, you know. And she's saying, oh, I, you don't even play tennis. He's like, yeah, but if I had a tennis court, I would learn. You know, the world was full of all this possibility. And now he's saying, like, I'm going to live in this little ranch house, and that's going to be fine. Nobody who's talking about maybe I'll get a tennis court at my house to learn tennis is going to be fine on an RV or in a little ranch house. I mean, you can already see that this is not going to work out. And that's what I talked about earlier, the, the kind of uh... – uh, like the office style, awkward, dark humor. You can just see where this movie is going. It's, right. His life is going to spiral down very quickly, all because of choices he and his wife make, and it's going to happen very, very quickly. And indeed it does. <laughs> okay, yeah, so so they have a big going-away party. They sell their house. They have all their yuppie friends out, and David's telling everyone how we're going to go out and touch Indians and see the world, and it'll be like Easy Rider. It'll be back in the 60s. All the ideals will be back, and they're like, yeah, whatever. You'll be back here in a couple of weeks, and... <laughs> And so they take off, and again, David has every every hope in the world that all this is going to work out for him. And the very first day, they're driving down the, the road in their new RV. This is their new mobile home. They're, they're going to live in this for the rest of their lives. And uh, he's, he's enjoying the fact that there's a grilled cheese sandwich. His wife makes him a grilled cheese sandwich in the microwave, and he's, I've never tasted such good cheese. Yeah. It just tastes different now. And then, like, a biker rides by, a motorcyclist. And then you got Born to be Wild is playing in the background. So he, like, gives a thumbs up to the motorcyclist, and the motorcyclist gives him the middle finger. And it just will set the stage very quickly to where they're going to go. And David and Linda's first stop, they're going to stop in Las Vegas. They've decided to symbolize our new life together. We're going to go to Vegas, and we're going to renew our vows. And, uh, again, this is the set piece of the movie that everyone remembers. This is why people talk about this movie as one of the great comedies of the era, the Las Vegas scene, which will make up about a good 20 minutes of the movie and will basically, the movie's all uh, all reacting to the Vegas scene afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I'm not sure if you were going to say what happens, but Julie Haggerty loses all their money the night they're there. You know, there's this, he talks, first she talks him into getting this, uh, getting this suite, bribing the the uh, the clerk at the hotel to get this bridal suite. Yeah, let's talk about let's talk about that scene. That is one of the other four standout scenes in this movie. The the front desk clerk at the hotel and then the the bellhop. Right, right. And so he's you know he she she says you know bribe him fifty dollars and we'll get what we want. And so he does and. They go upstairs, and it's more like uh, I, I, I think the bellhop. Even I have, could have this wrong, but I think he describes it once they get up there as a junior, junior suite. And uh, you know, Albert Brooks very memorably describes it as the place that Liberace's kids would sleep if he had. <laughs> and uh, and once again, it's just a, an, another thing where it's like somebody thinks they understand how the world works, but they're out of their element. You know, and this is actually. You could actually connect this to the horror movies of the era, too, where, you know, carloads of even like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was, you know, 10 years before this, but where, you know, a car full of kids shows up in a town and they act like they can behave how they always behave, but they can't mm -hmm. because there's this other element. And so obviously those are a lot, yeah, it's a lot darker than, than this movie, but it's the same sort of thing. They keep showing up places 
and assuming that the world is going to accept them as they are, accept their uh, eccentricities, accept the way they want to interact, and the world keeps telling them, no, we're here someplace you've never been, and we're going to do our own thing. The world is going to act how it acts. This bellhop is going to act how he's going to act. The guy at the, at the counter doesn't care that the wife thinks she knows how to get the actual suite, you know? He's going to take their money and give them the junior suite. And that's what life has done to these two. Yeah, you two are L.A. yuppies, and that might work out in the valley. That right. does not work here. Yeah, this this is the scene. As a comedy writer, this just warms my heart. And I will just walk through this scene for people who haven't seen it before, where David shows up at the front desk of this fancy Vegas hotel. He just walks up and says, uh, my wife and I have dropped out of society, and we'd like the bridal suite. <laughs> and the clerk's like, um, do you have a reservation? And he's like, well... I dropped out. I live in the moment. I don't really do reservations. And the clerk's like, well, we're a hotel and we do. Right, right, right. (laughs) That is such great comedy writing right there. I love how awkward that is. Yeah, I mean, Brooks does that several times in this movie. And it's always like so cringeworthy, but so so beautiful and sort of, uh, you know, um, even though, you know, it's not going to work out. It's kind of ridiculous. There's something I love about the fact that this character is willing to continually try and press on strangers the idea that what he is doing is, you know, revolutionary and worthwhile. Like, we have dropped out. He does it again in a scene I'm sure we'll talk about with the casino owner. You know, you see, I've dropped out of society. And he sort of expects people to say, wow, that's amazing. Let me cater to that. Let me help you. And, uh, you know, it's there. there's a sort of, beautiful naivete there you know that uh, I think is explored extensively in this movie to its credit and another point he can't figure out the tipping system so he has to just ask the bellhop how much money do you need <laughs> how much money are you waiting for that I will give you and then we will contr- finish this transaction okay so like Sean said then Basically, their nightmare comes crashing down the very first day of their trip that they go to Vegas to renew their vows. They go and sleep in their room at night in the junior bridal suite. And then the next morning, they're supposed to renew their vows and go live off the fat of the land and travel America. But it doesn't work so well because at some point during the night, Linda has gone downstairs and started gambling. And she basically loses every single cent of their of their nest egg, 194,000 or I think 144,000. She ends up losing on the roulette table. And so David wakes up the next morning to find out that his life, his wife has lost all their money. Now they're stuck in Vegas in an RV with nothing else to show for it. And he flips out. And this is a, again, more Albert Brooks tantrums as he first confronts his wife. And now he has to go meekly beg the owner of the casino for their money back. Yeah. And that's also the the other thing that's interesting about it is just, uh, you know, and again, to go back to the first scene of the movie where so much of, uh, so much of this is contained and foreshadowed and concentrated. You know, he talks in that first scene about uh, she she accuses him of being, you know, too responsible and, uh, you know, not free enough. And then when he goes into her office and tells her, quit your job, we're going to, you know, you're right, I'm too responsible. Then they get here and it's sort of like, you know, how free is acceptable? How irresponsible should you be to be free? You know, and I think it's quickly answered, like, you can't just be completely irresponsible. You can't just be completely free because she is. And it's, you know, essentially pulls the plug on everything they've been planning about their actual freedom. Yes, it has lasted one day. Their grand plan has lasted almost 24 full hours. 
So, uh, and I'm sure, you, as you were saying before, as a comedy writer, I'm sure it's, uh, I'm sure it's of interest to you too. The, um, this whole scene with the casino owner who is, or casino manager who is played by Gary Marshall, which is crazy casting, but works so well and is such a beautiful sequence. I mean, when he starts talking about, you know, where Albert Brooks starts pitching him on, um, you know, the advertising campaign, the, the campaign that could bring people to Vegas by letting them know that this casino, if they lose, will give them their money back, like Santa Claus and Miracle of 34th Street. Like, he just throws the kitchen sink in. And that is another extended, beautiful sequence of him trying desperately to get his money back. Yeah, and this is one I would... I guess for people who don't know this movie, just Google this. Someone has to have put this on YouTube. Just uh, Albert Brooks asking for his money back in Las Vegas. It's yeah. one of the cringiest scenes you are ever going to see. It's so uncomfortable to watch, and it goes on for a good 10 minutes. And it's just fantastic how how Brooks as a writer will just turn the screw and turn the screw and make it more and more awkward as this poor sap is just begging, begging the casino to give him their money back. And uh, like Sean said, he ties it into his job. Like, I work in advertising. We could do a whole campaign around this. It would be great. You're the first casino to give money back. People will love it. It would be so good for you. And the casino owner is just looking at him dumbfounded the whole time. Like, are you serious? You seriously think we're going to give you your money back? But Brooks, again, he will double down. He'll keep going and keep going. And that's the, the big signature scene of this movie. And that right there alone, if there was no other scene in this movie, that is why this is a Staff Picks episode for that scene right there. It's so well done. And, of course, it goes nowhere because David Howard is just a schlub and he's never going to get his way. Yeah. But at the end, he ends up getting – they get no money. The casino owner, I think, maybe comps them for their dinner or room or something. And that's about it. Right. <laughs> and now David is stuck with his wife who has now gambled away the nest egg with a gambling problem that she may have not been aware she had. And now they're down to like, what, 800 bucks or something like that? And so they can really only go – to Hoover Dam. They can drive to Hoover Dam for the day, and then they only have enough gas to maybe go to Arizona or New Mexico, and that's where they're going to live the rest of their lives. They have to go find an RV park. But there is a, a noteworthy scene here where he conf confronts his wife at the uh, at Hoover Dam where he uh, – it's the nest egg scene. People may remember this one where – David's got this idea in his, in his head, this nest egg. We've made a nest egg, and we've contributed all our money, and we will live in this, and she's gambled it all the way. So they get in a big fight over the definition of the word nest egg and whether she is ever legally allowed to use those words in a sentence again because of what she's done. Yeah, yeah, and then she jumps in a car and takes off with um, who I'm pretty sure everybody, uh, you know, people new to the scene would recognize as uh, – was it Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds? I think that was him. I did. That's what I thought when I was watching, too. That's the truck driver she hooks, hooks up with. If his name's not Ogre in Revenge of the Nerds, then the guy who is famous for shouting, Nerds, you know, and that's about, <laughs> that's about it. And um, so, yeah, I think I, I think there's uh, there's something um, really pivotal, uh, pivotal about that as well, where they, you know, they end up in this diner. He comes, tries to get his wife back from this guy, and the guy's just drags him outside and says, you know, we're going to fight now, punches him in the face. And that's where you start to get the impression that, you know, um, you can watch Easy Rider and you can dream about being an Easy Rider, but then you get out in the world and you might not actually be a badass who can defend yourself, you know? <laughs> and if you're going to go out and you're going to confront people, you know, you got to be ready to do it. 
and uh, and it, it, you, you start to get the sense of just how far out of the element they are. And it, it's amazing that this all happened so quickly, like you said. First day out, they lose their money. Uh, they have an argument about this that, that very morning. She gets in this car with this guy. This guy punches him in the face. His wife has to step in. And, you know, and, and that brings them back together. But at the same time, it, it has shown um, just how vulnerable they are out in this world that they expected to sort of, you know, go out in like they were uh, Dennis Hopper or something. No, nope, not Dennis Hopper. You're Albert Brooks. Yeah, there's a great quote here I just wrote down where, where they get in a big fight at the Hoover Dam over whether they've actually done Easy Rider correctly, where the wife says, We dropped out wrong, David. They had nothing. You drop out with nothing. And, and David says, No, in Easy Rider they had a nest egg. They had cocaine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically to make a long story short, they have some fights and he even tells her, This is the nest egg principle. This is the first of many lectures you are going to get over what a nest egg is, Linda. And then uh, they end up basically at an RV park. They end up at this little town called Safford, Arizona. And uh, <laughs> I have to say, great, great little Albert Brooks one-liner here. Just, this has nothing to do with the plot of the movie that we get to. But at one point, they're driving down the street after they've lost all the, their money, and a police officer pulls them over or comes up behind them. Oh, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and the wife is like, oh, maybe it's not for us. And David's like, oh, no, he's going to pull us over and tell us who it is as a courtesy. <laughs> that's such a great comedy writer line right there and again that's only an albert brooks line oh yeah he's gonna pull us over as a courtesy to tell us who he's really gonna pull over down the road yeah yeah and it would almost be too much if every time you know i just, I just talked about a couple minutes ago about how he's always telling everybody we've dropped out i've dropped out we're doing this etc cetera, etc cetera. and it never works but it does work in one scene in this movie and she, Julie Haggerty, says, I'm going to say this. And he says, don't do it. It's not going to work. You know, and it's sort of like an optimistic moment in the movie where he talks about Easy Rider. And the, guy, the, the cop says, even says something like, this is, a, you know, or maybe Albert Brooks says to him and he agrees. It's a, it's a club. You know, and they're both, they talk about different scenes in Easy Rider. And, you know, the, the cop even says something like, you know, hey, would Dennis Hopper give Peter Fonda a ticket? And, you know, it's this beautiful moment where he's actually connected with somebody on the road. <laughs> he found a peer. He hasn't been made fun of. He hasn't been punched in the face. He hasn't been laughed out of the room. He hasn't been humiliated. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a moment in the movie where you get the sense that, like, actually the trip was worthwhile because he went out, you know, like you, you brought up the, um, the biker who flips him off in the RV. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just there's just so many moments where he is told explicitly or implicitly, you're not worthy of dropping out, you know, or you were stupid to drop out. You know, the, it's just the humiliations come one after the another. And then this scene, you know, he, he's able to connect with somebody outside his world. And I, that's the moment where I, you, you almost get the feeling like there's two reasons why I think David's journey is a success. And I would say this one is one of them because, uh, you know, somebody else gets Easy Rider in the way he does and it pays off. No, I agree. It is the one time that he has found a peer on the road and he has found a friend. And again, it validates everything he did to get to this point, although his life is still in the shitter. But it has validated his choice. We did it correctly. We found someone who understands. And now we cut right to maybe the most humiliating scene in the movie, which I would argue is hard to do because we already had the casino owner scene. But now the one where David has to go into a small town unemployment office and beg for a job. 
Yes. Yes, the $100,000 box. Yes. Again, just just so many things in this scene to appreciate from a comedy writing perspective, from an acting perspective, comedy movie perspective. But yeah, he walks into a small town unemployment office in Safford, Arizona, looking for a $100,000 a year job. And the guy basically laughs him out of the room. And so David has to sit there and just take abuse after abuse from this guy who's wondering, like, why did you drop out of society? And David's like, well, because we, we, we couldn't find ourselves. We needed to go out there and explore the land and touch Indians. We needed to, to find who we were. And the guy like laughs. He's like, you couldn't find yourself on $100,000 a year? <laughs> David just has to sit there and take this. And so the guy is looking for jobs for David for some money. And uh, he offers him the lowly job of crossing guard. That's the only job they currently have in Safford. And David's like, well, how much does that pay? And the guy's like, well, five fifty an hour. And David's like, um, the, oh, no, for, yeah. And then David's like, uh, don't you have something a little higher than that? And, and the unemployment guy's like, like where? And David's like, isn't there like a white collar box of jobs? And this old guy just gets this great big grin on his face. And he's like, oh, you mean the $100,000 box? <laughs> David, again, to get this highly regarded L.A. exec advertising executive has to sit there and just take crap. <laughs> and literally, that's the job he ends up with. The only job he can get is a lowly crossing guard where he sits there on the corner with his little stop sign in his vest and he's abused by children. And it's just such a spectacular downfall of hubris for this character. Yeah, exactly. And that that's also, uh, you know, it, it's sort of interesting because just before he goes to the um, unemployment office, he goes to that pharmacy to see if he can get the delivery man job. And uh, the guy's like, oh, I don't. This is more like a delivery boy job. He's like, I should change the sign. I'm sorry, the sign is wrong. I should say delivery boy, you know. And uh, and that's almost more humiliating that this guy tries to save his feelings, you know. Oh, you read the sign wrong, this sort of thing. But then he goes in and, like you said, he gets this crossing job, uh, guard job. And um, I, I love that because it's not just a biker now flipping him off. It's these kids going around, you know, just hurling these epithets at him and. And uh, he eventually is just waving at other cars saying, come on through, kill the kids. You know, he's just definitively losing it. And uh, and uh, this this very nice car pulls up. I don't really know anything about cars, um, so I, I couldn't tell you what car it is. But, you know, the guy comes through, obviously well-off guy, sort of a ghost of his uh, former self in this very nice car. And, Albert Brooks has got his head in there while he's giving this guy directions, sniffing the interior uh, as a callback to when he was talking to that um, BMW or Mercedes guy or whatever about, you know, the whether he was going to have real leather in his car or if it's just going to be really thick vinyl, you know. And um, Mercedes leather. Yeah, Mercedes leather. There you go. And uh, it's really sort of uh, that. That's the moment where you sort of feel things breaking, you know, <laughs> and the, that tells you where it gives you a hint where things are going to go from here yeah david has reached the nadir of his life here the bottom i'm assuming nadir is bottom i think it is he's reached yes. the bottom part of his life here he is two days ago he was one of the high, most highly paid advertising executives in los angeles lived in a big house with a not quite a tennis court but he was going to get a tennis court and now he's sitting on a corner in safford arizona where little kids are riding their bikes around and calling him retardo so we, we've, we've had such a little downfall here. And you know, like Sean said, this guy in a Mercedes drives up and David just sticks his head in and smells. He has to sniff the leather. It's such a reminder of what his life used to be like two days ago. 
And again, you have to think of the, the humiliation here that, you know, yeah, his big experiment has failed and he's poor and he's living in an RV home. But you kind of think, oh, you, you have to do the math in your head. It's only been 48 hours. Like he hasn't, right, <laughs> he hasn't exactly. been out of the world that long, but he's already missing it. And so he goes back to his uh, the RV park with Julie Haggerty, and he's like, this sucks. We're like, this is our horrible life now. I'm a crossing guard. Kids are insulting me. And, like, his wife, who was a highly paid uh, personnel director, is now, like, an assistant manager at Der Wiener Schnitzel, working under a guy named Skippy, this teenage kid who, like, <laughs> has to explain to David how the fryer works. And David has to sit there and listen to this teenage kid tell him how frying french fries works. <laughs> right, and about how his wife you know, realized the fries were still frozen. You've got a good wife here. I mean, that's a, that guy, that, I'm sorry, that is a brilliant performance. One of the things that we haven't said about this movie, and I, I know we're moving on, but I just want to briefly say it while I'm thinking it, the casting in this movie is so essential to its success. You know, like we talked about Gary Marshall, but you talk about Julie Haggerty. How many actresses could uh, embody a character who loses all this money and... And have you feel bad for her in the face of Brooks yeah. yelling at her, you know? And then you've got Barry Marshall, who's brilliant. You've got, uh, you know, the, the, the ex-con who punches him in the face is, you know, is what it is, but still very naturalistic performance. This Skippy performance is so realistic <laughs> and so amazing. The speech he gives about, David, you've got a good wife here, and then sits down to watch the Flintstones, it's amazing. You could not picture this kid ever doing another movie but this should be something that everybody sees and says wow you really <laughs> contributed to cinema history my friend because that you know it's just it's just so wonderful and it's the same thing with his boss earlier in the movie you believe that guy's the boss the smarmy um you know the smarmy balding guy you believe that guy is a smarmy balding guy yeah it's so realistic again every little detail and that's the thing with albert brooks being the perfectionist down to every last casting choice everybody is perfect for their role and it has to be that because the rest of the movie is kind of crazy as far as the plot points go you know as you go as you move forward it's it's you know it, it asks you to believe a lot to buy into a lot and you're able to because um, the cast he surrounded with him, himself with is, is so amazing, especially, you know, you said at the beginning, Julie Haggerty, I fully endorse that. She is so great in this movie, and, um, and it would be a completely different movie without her. Yeah, and she is one that always, it just almost makes me sad when I watch this movie and, and like, Airplane to see how funny she was. And I know, admittedly, she probably had a great career as a stage actress, but there's she only did a couple movies, and, like, every movie she was in, she steals. Yeah. And she's one of those people, I just wish she had been in so many more movies. And there's one, I think, in the 2000s, she randomly pops up in that, uh, the movie, Ryan Reynolds movie, Just Friends, and she kills me in that movie as the mom. You yeah, I remember that. That's a, I actually think Just Friends is a really good movie. Oh yeah, that's a future Staff Picks episode. My friend uh, Michael turned me on to that a couple years ago, and I just I fell in love with that movie. The um, oh god, why can't I remember her name right now? She just did the, she just did the um, overboard. Oh uh, uh, yeah, with the uh, what is her name? Anna Faris. Yeah, Anna Faris. Her the songs in uh, that she does in Just Friends are so funny, so brilliant, so fitting. So uh, yeah, that's a that's an underrated movie for sure. Okay, yeah, that is an episode I will do very soon. But, yeah, the, again, the Julie Haggerty thing, that just, 
that just really bothers me that there weren't more movies featuring her because yeah who who could stand up to albert brooks in this movie and just take his irritating you know bullying and lectures and stuff and you you feel horrible for her because she just sits there and she lost the money she's like well i lost it there's nothing much i can do about it now and he just rails on her and rails on her and you feel bad for her and then she actually stands up to him in las vegas era in the hoover dam and it's just a great scene I mean, yeah so you get this total humiliation at the end where she's working under skippy at uh, Der Wiener Schnitzel and small trivia note I should point out that because we were about to record this podcast I went to the Wiener Schnitzel for lunch today so just <laughs> a sh- shout out to the Wiener Schnitzel people they dropped the dirt it's no longer called dirt now it's just Wiener Schnitzel <laughs> yeah so their life is just the absolute gutter everything they work for is gone their whole easy rider plan has fallen apart they're living in a trailer park with no discernible income in the future or, or uh, prospects to have any better life and so this is where they come up with the master plan. And this is like Sean said earlier. It's kind of weird that this is where the movie ends, but it does. It just kind of stops where David's like, hey, I got a great plan. Let's go to New York. And I beg for my job back. And she's like, yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. And he's like, and I'll eat so much shit. Yeah, she's exactly. Like, yeah. And so that's the end of the movie. They they pack up the RV. They ditch Skippy. They go to New York. And he basically grovels and begs for his high-paying executive job back. And they're going to become yuppies again, and the Easy Rider f- experiment was a failure. And just a wonderfully cynical, not not mean-spirited, that's not the right word, just a cynical, like a, like a slap in the face of reality movie for someone who, like Albert Brooks, would have grown up in the 60s with all these ideals as a hippie. You go into the 80s, and you become a yuppie, and basically that's the whole point of the movie. Like, we try to go back to our ideals, but we can't because those were stupid and we need money, so let's go get money again! And again, just one of these wonderful little comedy movies that was not a huge hit, but it's one of those that people who love this movie really love this movie. They, they're so uh, uh, attached to it, I would say. Yeah, and I, I actually think there's a less cynical take on this that, that can be had. Okay. Um, if you view it as sort of a twisted version of, um, like, It's a Wonderful Life or the Nicolas Cage movie, uh, Family Man, mm-hmm. um, where there is this moment where you get to see this other life you've been pining after, right? And it's not what it was cracked up to be. Like, in, in a way... This is a very subversive movie. I mean, I know it's always like tagged as Reagan era movie about the Reagan era, you know, values and all this stuff. But I think like I think there's a, something to be said for the fact that um, we're always looking at the things we didn't do, at the doors we closed, you know, at the places we didn't go, and um, and sort of thinking these things could all solve our problems and. That story is usually told through something like, you know, like when I think of like a, an actual Reagan era movie, I think of like something where the things are things are more clear cut, like Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Greed is good. And, you know, Michael Douglas screws the union out of its uh, its pension. Right. And, and and that to me is, you know, more along the lines of what people try and project on this movie sometimes, which I don't think it actually is. I think uh you know, I, I think everybody couldn't be as free. Uh, you know, every, everybody, the, the whole country couldn't become Woodstock forever, you know. And I think they've learned a very important lesson. You know, I, I actually feel like this couple can go forward in the, the existence that we don't see and be much happier. Because unlike most of us, 
they get a chance to to actually go and taste, you know, the fruit that they thought had completely left their lives, you know. And so they go out and they experience this freedom that they were sitting around. You know, at the beginning of the movie, she's in bed and she's saying, you know, you're too responsible. And he's saying, oh, I'm insane and responsible. And that's an awful thing. And they're having these fights about it. They're never going to have a fight about that again because they went out and they got the freedom they thought they wanted. And it wasn't that good. And they realized, you know what? Maybe what we want out of life is a nice car and a nice house. And maybe that's not right for everybody. But clearly it's right for them. And I think, like, when he says, I'm going to go eat shit, and that's the plan, I think there's something really beautiful about that. He's like, it's like he's realized, you know, uh, he's gone on this journey that started with this idea that he'd been missing something out that was built in his brain from a movie he saw, you know, all the references to Easy Rider. And this movie has been haunting his life the whole time. You know, and finally he got to experience it and he realized that's not what he actually wants. That's not who he actually is. And, you know, for the rest of his life, he's going to watch Easy Rider and he love it. He can talk the trivia about it. But him and his wife are going to be much happier people recognizing who they actually are, and what they actually want. And he seems for the first time in the movie genuinely happy at the end when he's chasing after the the, the what is it? The bald, the bald fart, whatever. <laughs> yeah. The bald headed fart. When he, uh, when he approaches him to eat shit, you know, he pulls up in the RV and jumps out in his suit and he's, you know, used his electric razor. That is the moment where Albert Brooks looks genuinely happy, genuinely satisfied, genuinely at peace with himself, <laughs> you know? And so it's, it's sort of like, you know, if, if you wanted to do the, it's a wonderful life. It's like no man who has, you know, a, an advertising job that gives him a comfortable life as poor kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. that's sort of he, what he's taken away from it. So that would just be my sort of closing thoughts on, uh, on where this goes. And, and I've related to that just in that, you know, I, I imagine most people are like this, but I wouldn't know, you know, where you do just sort of pine after these things in your past. And especially as you get older and, you definitively hear doors close behind you. There's a tendency to let nostalgia build things up to the point where you think like only if I had only done that, if I had only taken this, if I had only not been afraid of this and the whole, everything in society, you know, sort of see feeds into this where it's like, you know, I, I feel like the thumb of, um, the thumb of society in general and of not of society, but of the culture is definitely on the side of the scale that says, you know what? It's it's more admirable to throw you know to 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 follow your dreams no matter what to to sort of uh, be irresponsible you know to use their words irresponsible things and that's absolutely true for some people and a lot of the people we admire who have created the greatest things like Albert Brooks have you know have done these things have pursued their creations where you wouldn't think uh, success would lie you know and I, I see that especially in like writing about heavy metal and horror movies, you see that all the time, you know? And so I would never, I would never denigrate that. But the idea that it's not right for anybody to sort of just, uh, you know, to, to enjoy the life that they've created outside of that and to always be haunted by these unfulfilled dreams, I think, I think that causes a lot of misery for people. And Albert Brooks in this movie, you know, him and Julie Haggerty, 
get a chance to, uh, you know, live the life they thought they wanted, and now they realize they actually want the life they have, and that's that's a beautiful thing, really. Yeah, in a way, that's that's actually really uh, a good description of it. I know I kind of simplified it a little, and again, it's one of those things that Albert Brooks is far too smart of a writer to just say something that that would just be cynical and then there's no uh, resolution to it. Yeah, so I think you're absolutely right that they have learned, they have decided that, you know, our reality was so much better than virtual reality. And it's funny, as you were saying that, it just reminded me of that movie uh, Ready Player One. Did you see that when that just came out? I have not seen it. Yeah, but that's kind of the point of that movie as well. Like, it's all great to live in this virtual reality world, but at the end of the day, what you have in reality is so much better and learn to appreciate that. So it's kind of the same message you get in a little different way. And again, yeah, this this might indeed be a very warm-spirited, very warm-hearted, it's a wonderful life, just kind of couched under Albert Brooks's cynicism and his character just kind of being a little douchebag. But again, you're right. At the end of the movie, he's happy. We figured it out. We learned what we want. Let's go eat shit and make life happy and make life good again. And again, there's there's some wisdom to that for a lot of people that maybe that's all you need in life to be happy. Every once in a while, just kiss somebody's ass and they'll treat you well and you'll get money and a job and everything works great. And maybe if you have that little dignity to be able to, or a little humility and a little dignity to be able to kiss ass, maybe that's all you need in the world. So again, he's learned a lesson. He and Linda are going to be very happy, rich yuppies again, only now they're going to be in New York and not LA and they won't get a tennis court and maybe he'll still be upset about that he'll be pining for that tennis court but at least those are tangible dreams he can approach and understand again well yeah and one of the one of the aspects of this movie that sort of blows your mind it, from a present day perspective is just like all the all the time people spend crapping on new york you know <laughs> <laughs> they're like uh, i think people a lot of people would love to live in new york and can't afford to now now that it's sort of like you know uh Disneyland. Um, but back then, you know, he talks about, you know, I don't want to go to New York. They just steal everything from you when you step off the plane or step off the bus or whatever. And, uh, and so that's an interesting thing to showing how life has changed. <laughs> Well, you know what's funny is I know you're from the East Coast. I am a proud West Coaster. I've lived here my whole life, and secretly I have never liked New York. So there's a there's a small little uh, sadistic part of me that loves when anybody in a movie would take digs at New York, especially yeah, yeah. Albert Brooks, because for so long being called the West Coast version of of, of Woody Allen, I'm sure he takes a special pride in saying, "I don't want to live in New York. F New York." So yeah, exactly. I, I will say that. that makes sense. So I totally understand, but yeah, as a East Coaster, that might seem very odd to you, and especially for a movie of this era, that was not, it was not really uh, expected for people to bag on New York in a movie, but yeah, Albert Brooks, several digs at New York in this movie about how he wants nothing to do with living there, yet in his fantasy at the end, he's going to live there, so now he's an East Coaster. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's interesting is um, you can really connect this movie, I think, to modern romance, just in, in the tone of his character. And you see that uh, come through um, later in later Albert Brooks movies, but I really feel like this is one of those examples of a piece of art that actualized an idea so much so that the creator never had to really go back to it fully. You know, I mean, and then you go on to Defending Your Life, which is a vastly different movie, although Albert Brooks is similar in it. You know, and then um, you know you brought up Mother. Uh, you know, that, that's a movie where um, where again the character is the same, but is similar, but the setup is so different. I, I really feel like um, he perfected something here that he'd been getting at for a while mm -hmm. that made it so that he never really had to revisit it again. 
And I, I think so. I think if somebody hasn't seen any Albert Brooks movie who's listening to this, I actually think to understand Albert Brooks' uh, entire filmography and work, I don't think this is a bad place to start at all. I mean, again, um, we talked about Defending Your Life. That one is consistently called his best movie. But I would agree, don't start with that one because that one's a little – a little. Uh, I mean, meta, more metaphysical. I don't know what the word would be, but it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing movie, but it's also uh, if you want to if you want to just say like what's a what's a good movie to start at the you know just a, in general, then I might say that movie. But if you're looking to specifically explore Brooks, I, I think that movie is wonderful, but I think it's a, sort of an outlier. Yeah. Uh, as far as like the, the the ideas that he generally delves into throughout his uh throughout his films yeah and again that is a fantastic movie it's a really well done and everyone loves it i will be doing that on staff picks very soon but i got to give a shout out to this one lost in america this one never gets mentioned as the better of the albert brooks movies it's kind of the forgotten one behind the other ones i just have such a soft spot for this one and again just there's the four set pieces in this movie. You got the one at the start where he's he doesn't get the promotion and he has a temper tantrum. You got the second one where he uh, has to beg for his money back at the casino. You get the third one where he has to grovel for a job at the unemployment office at the small town office. And then the fourth one where he's humiliated by little kids and Skippy in uh, Arizona and they have to eat shit and go back to their lives. Just such a fantastic movie. And uh, it's just one of those... Um, I, it's one of those I can't think of anybody who wouldn't like this movie. Again, it's it's they always say movies are dated. Like this movie isn't really fast paced and flashy for a modern audience. But then again, you got shows like Parks and Rec and The Office, which are that awkward, uncomfortable, silent humor, which is all over this movie. So it's one of those things. Like I I just can't think of anybody who would dislike this movie. It's so charming and just so effective for what it's trying to do. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect cast, great setup. Excellent, you know, excellent jokes, and I think it has a real heart to it as well. And um, and I do hope, I do hope uh, before before we started, I was mentioning, you know, how much I love the Criterion edition that was just issued, maybe last year. I can't remember exactly when it came out, but um, that's got a lot of great uh, supplemental interviews that I think are very interesting. Um, but I really hope that uh, that release begins to give this movie a bit more of a cachet, you know, I, I hope through being sort of uh, put in that lofty uh, company, I, I hope more people uh, come to discover and enjoy the brilliance of this movie and sort of the wonderful understated um, philosophical musings that are sort of underpin it. So uh, that would be my hope. And of course, through this podcast as well. And again, Albert Brooks, just a comedian's comedian, just one of these guys that everybody holds in such high esteem. And it's just, I really hope that people will uh, kind of seek this one out and give it a chance. It's one of these really kind of hidden gems of the mid-80s. And uh, again, I want to thank you, Sean, for being here. Is there anything you want to plug? How can people find you? I, I uh, Again, I was very impressed. It was fun talking to you because you had a lot of ideas. It's clearly you'd thought. It's clear you had thought about this movie quite a bit. So I'm actually looking forward to maybe we can do another episode in the future. Is there a way people can find you if they want to see your other stuff? Uh, yeah, so I have a website. It's, um, the, it's a new website, so I'm just sort of populating it with my old features. Uh, it's www.stopshawmccumber.com. And then I'm on Twitter at, at Sean McCumber. And um, 
and that sort of has links to everything uh, people, you know, if there's any interest, would have. And, and I would just say, you know, as far as the, having thoughts about this go, this is wonderful to get invited on here because um, not a lot of people want to talk about Albert Brooks. Mm-hmm. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about Albert Brooks movies, thinking about, you know, his even his novel was wonderful. Uh, you know, I love his work so much. And so it was a real joy to get a chance to finally, you know, vomit some of this stuff out. I, I hope it wasn't, hope it wasn't too much, but, um, but yeah, I really appreciate, appreciate the opportunity to talk at length with a uh, Albert Brooks fan about this movie and as well as his work in general. And um, I guess I should probably pick up that Saturday night live uh, history because mm-hmm. it sounds like there's some good uh, Brooks tidbits in there. Well, it is, but his contributions to the show were never, I'd think, that strong. Like, some of his early movies are good, but they didn't really fit with the theme of the show. And, yeah. like, they would often blend over into two segments when Lauren thought they should be one segment. So I wouldn't say that was his best work. But, yeah, that's clearly the genesis of one of the smartest comedy writers around. And for people who don't uh, know Albert Brooks at all, I'd advise you to go even go look up some of his old stand-up acts. There, You can yeah. find them on YouTube. And there's a fantastic one where he plays the world's worst ventriloquist. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that a is. fantastic one. Yeah. So uh, anyway, I just want to thank everyone for listening, for tuning in to uh, one of the, uh, I would say, hopefully brainier episodes of the show. This Albert Brooks, again, just a whole different level of comedy that uh, anybody I think could like and appreciate if you like how comedy is constructed, played out, acted, everything. And again, uh, my name is Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you have any comments, you can reach me at uh, staffpickspodcast at gmail.com. You can reach me on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time, I will be out there looking for more underrated, underloved, and underappreciated movies. And remember, sometimes the only thing you need in life to make you happy is to eat some shit. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Coming from your position and your salary, you wouldn't be interested in it. Well, you don't know me. I might love it. What is it? A crossing guard. What is that? A crossing guard? A crossing guard. At a school? Where else have you seen them work? I just didn't know if there were different kinds. Um, What does that pay? (laughs) $100,000.